Amen, Lord. We just thank you for that truth. We thank you for the truth of the gospel. We thank you for the truth that although we are sinners, and even now on the side of salvation, we are still prone to, to wander away, Lord, that you, you continue to draw us back, that you have sealed us with the deposit of your spirit, Lord, um, and you will see us through to the end, God. We confess that you are Lord, that you sent your son to come down and live a life that we could not, and that by faith in him, Lord, you, you give us the righteousness of Christ. And in the same way that he is our, our justification, he's also our sanctification. In the same way that he's our righteousness, he's also our holiness. Lord, you tell us that our life is not lived on our own now. It's in union with Christ. And so help us to just live like that's true. <laughs> and we come to your word this morning very simply just to see how to do that. We ask that you would soften our hearts and prepare us to hear what you have and respond accordingly. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Well, good morning. Everybody doing all right this morning? It's good to see everybody. Uh, turn to Romans 15. We're going to finish up chapter 15 this morning. You guys can pray for me as you're turning there. I'm not a guy, like, I don't walk up here with my iPad charged at anything less than 100%. Not because, like, I feel like I need it to get through the sermon or anything like that. It just, just gives me, like, some comfort and security. But I'm rolling at, at 87 this morning. <laughs> and it's just making me anxious up here, so. We're going to read, starting in verse 22, and we'll go through the end of the chapter. Paul writes, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When, therefore, I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ." I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Uh, Rodney Smith, also well-known as Gypsy Smith, if you've heard of him, uh, who many consider to maybe be the greatest evangelist the world has ever seen, he once made this statement. He said, there are five Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Christian. Most people will never read the first four. 
Now, let me qualify with a few statements first before we, before we talk about this. One, we do not believe that our lives should be viewed as a literal fifth gospel. Uh, two, we don't even believe that our lives as God's people are on par with revelation from God or scripture. Three, we do believe that we and everyone, believer or unbeliever, needs to go directly to the Bible for sound doctrine and, and not try to arrive at right belief simply by assessing the world or each other. And four, we do think that the Christian life should be informed by and dependent upon the Word of God in the Scriptures. But having said that, if we can just make those qualifications first and, and kind of uh, get past some of the messiness of it, I think we can begin to see that the, the underlying sentiment or idea behind it is 100% true, which is this, that there lives the reality that sometimes when an unbelieving world looks in and, and sees how God's people treat not only the outside world, but even how God's people treat those inside the church, they don't want nothing to do with the Jesus that they claim to serve, and they certainly don't want to sit down and read about him. But it begs the question, does it not, that, that when, they, when they do look at Christians, what should they see? What does the Bible say that they should see that would actually be compelling to a watching world and be faithful to the Bible all at the same time? There's a lot of things I think we could say here. C.S. Lewis suggests that uh, one specific thing God would have of his people is that they would be willing to live uncomfortable lives for the sake of ministering the gospel to an unbelieving world. He put it like this. He said, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. This is no small claim to make, and this is fundamentally what we're going to go to the text to try to prove or disprove this morning. Does Christianity, does the gospel, does it really place this demand on my life? Because here's the thing, friends, the stakes are high on us. Uh, this claim, it's not, it's not circumstantial, it's not grounded in subjective experiences, it's not rooted in first century culture or politics. So the stakes on this are high because its claim is to be nothing less than biblical truth. The stakes are high both for what this means now and what it could mean for the future. If this is true right now and, and we look and we find that we have never been willing to or, or maybe ever even been just a little uncomfortable in following Jesus well, maybe it's not Jesus that we've truly been following this whole time. And if it's true, maybe we're called to something we would have never imagined. And so we can't, we can't just dismiss it. We can't dismiss it. We have to actually go here, and we have to see if this is really the demand that the gospel would put on us. And I'll just put my cards on the table up front. I think when we go to Romans 15 this morning and, and we test the validity of this idea by looking at how Paul describes not only his own ministry, but, but the ministry of the early church, we see that their ministry, what their ministry is required of them, we'll see that it's true. That the calling that the Bible puts on us would require us to live uncomfortable lives, and we'll see it in three specific ways this morning. So let's go there. Let me try to show you what this looks like from the life of Paul and the early church as it's described in our text this morning. The first thing we see is that Paul, he was willing to give up relational comfort for the sake of his ministry. As we pick up the passage right at the beginning here in verse 22, we see 
uh, Paul talking about how he has, he has so longed, wished to come and visit them. He has often been hindered from coming to you. He says, again in verse 23, he says, I have, I have longed for so many years to come to you. I hope to see you, to be helped by you, and enjoy your company for a while. Later down in verse 32, he talks about uh, wanting to come and be refreshed in your company. And so what's the picture here? Well, the picture here is that these people that Paul's writing to, he, he desires to come see them very much. These are people who provide him joy. They provide him encouragement, refreshment, uh, even help, he says in verse 24. He says, I hope to see you in passing on my way to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you. Uh, there's somewhat of a break, I think, from, the, from the, the hard, everyday life of ministry that Paul is living. There's somewhat of a breather from the grind of the the day-to-day life of ministry for the Apostle Paul. If you know sports, uh, I think you can compare it to like the, the, easy, the easy non-conference game that you schedule in the middle of the season. You know what I'm talking about? You just kind of take a break from the grind of the season. You get some, some reps in. There's really no stress involved. You pad the stats. Maybe get some of the, the bench guys some extra playing time, right? Everybody's happy. Or maybe it's like taking a break from playing your friends and playing one of your little brothers instead, right? It's easy. None of my younger brothers are here this morning, so I'm going to say that with my chest while I got the chance. Nobody can test me on it. But that's how Paul is describing these people and what it would mean to him to be able to visit and enjoy their company. But the reason that he has not visited them yet, as we know from context, is Paul's been out on mission, ministering to those who need to hear the gospel. That's what we talked about last week. And the way that he describes this, it's, it's not like this was just a one-time thing, right? No, he, he continually has been hindered from coming to them. He says, I, I've so often been hindered from coming to you, implying that he, he's wanted to for a while, but ministry obligations, they just keep coming up and coming up. People in need, opportunity to spread the gospel and serve the people that he's called to. And so he has continually been hindered from taking a break, even at the expense of his own joy and benefit. And what this tells us about Paul right away in his ministry and, and the example that he sets for us is that he's willing to forego relational comfort for the sake of ministering the gospel to those who have not heard it. And just right off the bat, I, I wonder if this is the read that people would get on us as they look at our lives and see what this Christianity that we claim is all about. Uh, if someone were to read us as God's people, would they come away with the impression that we're willing to sacrifice our own relational comfort for the good of the gospel spreading to lost people? Would they see a people who are willing to follow the Lord Jesus at all costs? I think this one immediately hits pretty hard here in our context, if I'm honest. Those of you who are, who are from here and have grown up here and lived here much longer than I have, you'll know far better than I do that one of the best things about this area and this community is, is just that, right? It's, it's the community, it's the relationships, the, the heritage, the family, the support that is here for a lot of us. It's comfortable. <laughs> and that really is a good thing about our community. But friends, if I'm honest, the portrait that the Bible paints of the follower of Jesus is that they're willing to forsake their comforts for the sake of the gospel, including relational ones. This is the Jesus, after all, who when his 
family heard what he was doing in Mark 3. It says they, they thought he was crazy and they tried to control him. The Jesus who later, when he's told that his mother and brothers are looking for him, he says, who are my mother and my brothers? And then he looks around and he says, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is the Jesus who it says in John 7, not even his own brothers believed in him. This is the Jesus who was despised and rejected by his own people and even some of his disciples. This is the Jesus who the day he was born, a bounty was put on his head. The Jesus who was, he was led out by the Spirit of God into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This is the Jesus who was tortured and murdered by the religious leaders who claimed to be the people of God. That's who we follow. And friends, hear me, I'm not... I'm not telling anybody to get up and, and, and leave the context you're in and the present situation that you're in. I'm really not. And I don't, I don't think that the Bible is explicitly necessarily telling you to do that very thing this morning. Uh, th- this is something we always have to be careful about in Bible reading and, and places like this in particular. Is it, is it prescriptive or is it descriptive? Is it prescribing the life for every Christian or is it, is it simply describing the life of Paul or, or whatever it may be. And I think here it's, it is more of the latter. I don't think this text is, is prescribing this in a way that would tell every single believer to do the exact same things that Paul is describing here. But at the same time, even when the text is more descriptive, there's often a principle or, or an idea that we can take away, and that's true here as well. And so while I don't think the text is telling you explicitly to get up and leave... What I am telling you is this, that this accurately describes the heart of the follower of Christ, and you should absolutely be willing to leave it all behind if God were so moved to put that call on your life. Paul, as a follower of Jesus, accepts this reality for his life, and the question for all of us is, will you do the same? Part of our mission and our purpose as a church is that we would be, we would be, we would be growing and we would be maturing uh, through the discipleship of the church into the mature man. And, and part of what that mature church does is it, it constantly sends people out into the world to take the message of salvation to lost people, uh, just like Jesus did before he ascended to the Father. And, and the great comfort in this is not, it's not that we're going to have our families and our friends and our loved ones with us as we do so, our comfort is rooted in the fact that no matter where we are, as Jesus told his disciples right after he gave them the Great Commission in Matthew 28, he says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the same confidence God has been putting in his people to live radically across the entire biblical storyline. When God commissions Moses to go to Pharaoh and, and demand to Pharaoh to let his people go, Moses says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And what is God's response? I'll be with you. The confidence given to Joshua in chapter 1 before he, he, he leads the people into the conquest of the land and everything that takes place in his life, he says, no man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. It's the same confidence that the psalmist of, of Psalm 23 has, that, that even though he will walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he is with me. And friends, from an eternal heavenly perspective, not an earthly one, 
there is really no greater comfort than that. Amen? It's the pillow that we can lie our head on. That no matter where it is I'm serving Jesus, he's with me. And the second thing we see is that Paul compels these Christians to forsake their material blessings for the good of others. Verse 25, at present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints of Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material ones. Paul's talking about a, a collection or an offering of some sort that he's, uh, he's collected among different groups of believers to take to people in Jerusalem who are in need. Uh, he's already gathered collections from believers in Macedonia. And okay, he says, and it's just interesting how he goes about this because he doesn't just come out and say, you should give to them too, Right? He just sort of explains how these other Christians are doing it and why they're doing it with the goal in mind that they, they wouldn't necessarily do it out of coercion, but out of a sense of obligation in their love for each other. And at face value, I don't know about you, at face value, it seems like a little bit passive aggressive, right? Um, like he won't just come out and, and say it. He's trying to manipulate them almost. Like maybe that's a better way to put it. It seems like he's trying to use peer pressure to, to kind of coerce them into giving as well. But I don't, I don't think we should necessarily read any ill intent on the Paul, part of Paul into this. Uh, one commentator is helpful here. He says, The cynic would see this as a form of manipulation and indeed, many modern fundraisers have used a spin on Paul's words to pressure people to give. <laughs> but in reality, Paul's words are the truth. There's no manipulating at all. Christ became poor, we became rich. Our love will be best revealed when we follow his example by taking of what we have and giving it, becoming poor, to those who are poor, making them rich. And then he says, this is simply the reality of the kingdom of God. Point being, it's not passive-aggressive manipulation if it's true. <laughs> and if you're feeling pressured or manipulated by the real truth, well, maybe that's not all bad. I want to point out two specific things about his reasoning on this. One, uh, Paul uses the language that it's an obligation that they have towards one another. He says in verse 27, they were pleased to do it, for they owe it to them. Again, we have to let context tell us what's going on here. It's not, it's not a, a debt or an obligation uh, simply for money's sake. It is to be done as an act of love that uh, overflows out of the love that we've been shown. Paul says they owe it to them, but rightly understood, this is just an expression of the one thing that we actually do owe one another, which is love. <laughs> It always comes back to how you love other people. Remember Romans 13, verse 8. Remember this. Owe no one anything except to love each other. <laughs> Tricky little statement, kind of, isn't it? Uh, this reminds me of just like a good, a good argument or, or debate. Because here's the thing about arguing with people that know how to argue well. Um, 
what's, what's important is not just responding to the, the statement or the question or whatever it is that's just been posed right in front of you. It's, it's trying to respond to the next one. What do I mean by this? Well, for example, one of the arguments that I have uh, often with a few friends in particular is about who the, who the greatest basketball player of all time is, right? Is it Michael Jordan or is it LeBron James? And we go in circles, and I'm not going to I'm not going to tell you what I think this morning. Just in case there's some weaker brothers out there, I don't want to cause anyone to stumble. Uh, but like an example of how this would go is, is someone with authority, someone who maybe played against both of them, right? They make a comment on this in the media. Uh, one, one recently was uh, Jason Williams. You guys know who Jason Williams is? You remember him? Bad white boy. <laughs> A bad white boy. They call, they call Jason Williams white chocolate. Like, there's nothing else we need to say about him. But Jason Williams, he, he commented on this, and if his comment is in your favor, you don't just come out and, and kind of post the comment and say, look, look what he said, I'm right. No, 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 no. You lead with a question. You guys like Jason Williams? You respect Jason Williams? You think Jason Williams is knowledgeable about basketball? And once they admit to that and agree to it, then it's like, oh, well, look what he said the other day, right? And then they're kind of stuck. That's sort of how this goes in these chapters of Romans. Be careful what you agree to with Paul. (laughs) Be careful now. Paul says all the way back in Romans 13, all that you owe each other is to love each other. That's it. No big deal. (laughs) And then Paul starts fleshing out what that actually looks like. Outdo one another in showing honor. Show hospitality. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Bless those who persecute you. Associate with the lowly. Feed your enemy. Lay down your rights and freedoms. Give them your money. And we could go on. You owe them one thing, your love. That's it. But understand that once you commit to that, you just committed to all of it. Paul says, let me just get you to see the importance of this one overarching idea and responsibility, love people. And once I get you to agree to that, you're on the hook for everything. Because whatever it takes now to love that person, you do it. Whether it's your time, your energy, your effort, your home, your resources, you owe them your entire being. And so you leverage all of it for their benefit because that's the way you've been loved by Christ. It is all yours for their benefit. But this kind of commitment, it requires a second principle to highlight, which is that the the Bible, it, it always emphasizes spiritual blessing over material blessing. And Paul does the same thing here. You can only love people with your material blessings if you first see them, your material blessings, in light of the spiritual blessings you have in Jesus. He says, For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. A part of what's going on here with the categories of Jew and Gentile is the idea that the the spiritual blessings of being God's people, they first belong to the Jews, right? Uh, But now as Paul has explained in Romans 11, the the Gentile nations, they've been grafted into those blessings through their faith in Christ. But, But notice the implication now. 
if they're getting to share in the spiritual blessings of the Jews, well, surely they will share with them in their material blessings as well. It's, it's sort of like a greater to lesser argument, I think. The benefit that they're sharing in is far, far, far greater than the one that they're called to offer up now. And it's actually because of the blessings they've received in salvation that this sharing and material blessing, it's not something they even have to be coerced into. Paul says they actually enjoy it. (laughs) Because it comes from a heart that recognizes what true worth and blessing is found in the Christ from the Jews and not in any material thing from the world. 2 Corinthians 8 gives a little more context for what's going on here. As Paul, he, he talks about the same, it's the same exact offering he's talking about here in Romans 15. There he's talking about it to the church at Corinth. But let me read a few verses from Paul there. Because he, he brings this out more forcefully when talking about generosity in light of the work of Christ and, and kind of as being tied to an expression of love and how these things relate. In verses 8 and 9 he says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. This is the good example of it. It's it's Christ forsaking all of his glory, all of his riches, becoming poor for our sake, so that we may become rich in him, and now it's depl- applied directly to us giving up our material blessings out of love for those in need, just like Christ did for us. I think we see a negative example of this on, on the other side, maybe, in the parable of the lost son. You all remember that, and, and we'll remember that there's, uh, there's three parables there in a row. The lost, the lost son is the last one, and the way that that chapter starts in Luke 15, in the first couple of verses... It says, now the tax collectors and, and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And then Jesus tells them not one parable, but three. He tells them the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And, and here's the movement. Lost sheep, material item. Lost coin, material item. Lost son, spiritual soul. And what Jesus does is he, he rebukes the Pharisees for rejoicing over the lost sheep and the lost coin, but not rejoicing over one lost sinner. And this is a sign that they're not viewing these things with the right perspective. Part of the rebuke of the religious leaders is that they don't view spiritual blessing as being far, far, far more valuable than material blessings. They'll rejoice over money and material items, but they won't rejoice over one lost soul coming back to God. And the check for all of us this morning is, can the same be said of us? When people look into the life of God's people, would they come away with the gospel message conclusion that true riches are spiritual and not material or monetary? Here's the thing, (laughs) the Bible is very, very, very clear about this. We have a choice to make in following Jesus. Will we be allegiant to money and to material gain, 
Or will we be allegiant to Jesus Christ as Lord over our lives and the mission that he has called us to? And it's not a matter of whether or not money itself is right or wrong or or having money is right or wrong. That's not the discussion. (laughs) Money is just a thing. The discussion, it's actually much more difficult than that because it, it lies at the heart level of what it is that you find yourself truly, truly in service to. That's the discussion. This is how Jesus frames the whole conversation when he says, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. And then he makes a direct one-to-one application to money. And he says, you cannot serve both God and money. If you serve money, you will give up everything you have to get it, including Jesus. You understand that? But if you serve King Jesus, you'll give yourself and all that you have in service to him. It is one or the other. Paul accepts this reality for his life. And he paints a picture of a church here that accepts this reality for themselves as well. And the question now is, will we do the same? The third comfort Paul would have us give up for the sake of the gospel is circumstantial comfort. Circumstantial comfort, where am I getting this from? Well, in verse 30, Paul begins to ask them, out of love, to strive with him in prayer to God and on his behalf. He says, that I might be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you. There's some debate around how uh, aware Paul, uh, Paul was of his, of his coming death. He, he references a, a coming affliction in several places, this being one of them, and there's, there's Good reason, I think, to suggest that he is actually consciously aware that he's, he's going into his death. Uh, in 2 Timothy, he talks about being prepared to be poured out as a drink offering. There's similar language in Philippians. It, it's hard to say how aware he is of the specific like, time and details of it. Um, but but I, I think it's very reasonable to say that broadly, he's aware that he's going to die for Christ. In Acts 21, when he, he talks about going to Jerusalem which again, is, it's the same trip he's talking about here in Romans 15. Um, when he talks about it there, he says plainly, I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the sake of the Lord Jesus. So he knows what's coming. And the reason I think he knew this would happen is because Christ told him that it would happen basically on his, on his call on the road to Damascus. You remember in Acts 9, uh, the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. That was the call on Paul's life. And he answered it. Um, I don't think that the church in our context, uh, Western Christianity broadly, does particularly well in any of these things, to be honest, just not to cast too broad of a brush. But I think that we, we probably struggle with comfort more than maybe believers in other parts of the world just because of what we're, what we're used to here. Uh, we live very comfortable lives. Um, but I think if we were to kind of line these things up that we've talked about this morning, um, this might be the one that the, we're the worst at. It's true that there there's two ditches on either side of this, but I'm only going to talk about one this morning, if that's okay, because I think it has been heavier in 
particularly mainstream evangelicalism here recently, um, much of our Christian culture at large views the Christian life as just being lived above the line. You know what I mean by that? Um, the assumption is that the Christian life, it's just only full of victory and joy and blessing. If we experience hardship of any kind, um, there's, you know, I don't, there, there must be a sin problem in our life that we're not dealing with, or we legitimately just pretend that it's not there sometimes, I think, um, because we, we don't have a good theology of the Christian life that includes categories for trial and suffering. We don't know what to do with it. You can sense this, I think, in a lot of main, mainstream worship music. I was listening to this podcast the other day. Um, it was J.J. Reddick's podcast, who, if you're not familiar with, he was uh, like the most hated college basketball player ever, played in the NBA for a long time. Uh, he's now in the sports media space. Now, not a believer, <laughs> and he's having this conversation on his very secular media outlet, but he ironically illustrates this point that I want to make perfectly. He had a couple other um, ex-NBA ex players on his show, and J.J.'s a white guy, the other two are black. They asked him the question like, J.J., what do white players listen to before a game? <laughs> Which is just... I don't know, kind of funny to begin with. But J.J. answers, and he's like, you know, it was a lot of, of hip-hop early on. He lists some artists. But he says, as I got older, and, and he, he starts to describe a band, he says, uh, there was a, a documentary on this church recently. And I'm like, church? And he goes, Hillsong. <laughs> and he says, I started listening to Hillsong before games. Which, man, I'm sitting there. I went to Cedarville University Christian School and uh, we went to chapel five days a week. We were bumping to Hillsong every day in there, right? And it didn't necessarily make me want to go play basketball. So I'm listening to JJ talk about listening to Hillsong before his NBA basketball games. And I'm like, what is, what is going on with this? But his reasoning was interesting. He said, he said the, the reason he would listen to Hillsong is because there was always a crescendo. The songs almost always start slower and quieter, and they, and they build in volume and pace until they reach a peak. And in terms of pitch, it often gets higher and higher at the same time. And he said that it helped him because that's kind of how a basketball game goes too. It, it's, it's going to take time to develop, but everything, it's building towards this climactic few minutes when it really comes to a peak. Now, just think about the implicit message of that, because theology is underneath everything. When that's all it ever is, the message is that that's the rhythm and movement of the Christian life as well. Contrast this with Carl Truman's take. He wrote a, a spunky little article about 10 years ago called, What Can Miserable Christians Sing?, where he contrasts the, the pitch and the tone and movement of modern worship music with, say, uh, the Psalms of the Bible, much of which is filled with lament and feelings of sadness and brokenness and torment. And then he asks the question, which one more faithfully represents the Christianity of the Bible, at the center of which stands the suffering servant who has nowhere to lay his head and suffers even to the point of death? The inconsistently, it, it undoubtedly still relates back to all the comforts we enjoy. And at some point, the inconsistency, it becomes an issue of morality and not simply methodology. 
the truth is, friends, that the Christian life, it doesn't always work like a basketball game. <laughs> the crescendo, it doesn't always come right now. And J.J. Reddick, he, he literally proves the point that we're making. When the world looks in on God's people and gets a read on them, would they come to the same conclusions about God and Christianity that the Bible presents? How easily we allow our comforts to just sort of lull us to sleep and cause us to forget that we follow a God who has revealed himself manifestly hanging naked on a cross, dying for our sin. See, we, we think, we think, we think that we, can, that we can see God and we can know God somehow apart from sharing in his suffering when the Bible has absolutely no category for that. It doesn't exist. And what we've done is we have excluded aspects of the Christian life like loneliness and sacrifice, desolation, and we have implicitly, if not explicitly, communicated the message that those things have no place in the life of a Christian. When at the same time we go to the Bible, we read the testimony of Christ, and we see him, the literal God-man, experience all of those things in a more extreme way than we ever possibly could. What do you mean the Christian life is never supposed to feel lonely? What do you mean it's never supposed to feel a little uncomfortable? What do you mean that I'm always supposed to just feel triumph and victory? Friends, if you only ever feel victory and triumph in your Christian life, then maybe, maybe, maybe it's not Jesus you've been following. That's not the Christianity that is described in the Bible, and that is not the life of Christ that we're said to be in union with, walking in. When Paul explains his life in Philippians 3, he says, he says he's casting every reason he had to boast or any comfort he could find in and of himself. He's counting it all as lost for this reason. This is why. That I may share in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And when he describes what this feels like in 2 Corinthians 1, he says, We were so utterly burdened beyond our belief that we despaired of life itself. You cannot know God apart from suffering and the cross. And neither can you serve him apart from the death of yourself for the good of other people. That's just the way. This is the other part that we have to realize. Worship team, you can come up. We're going to land here. The other part we have to realize in this is that <laughs> this is the way that God's word goes out and prospers. It's not just about us. This is always how it happens, friends. In a world that lives in opposition to the gospel, this is how it goes out. And it's not inherently about pragmatics and what the most effective way is. It's inherently about the shape of the Christian life. What is the movement and the shape of the Christian life? It's a cruciform theology that says that the crucified Messiah himself 
is the shape and form of the Christian life and the mission of God and his people. It all happens through suffering and the cross. And this is what we're called to. And we can't be deceived by any external thing into to thinking that we can, we can somehow follow Jesus without getting uncomfortable from time to time. And so before we leave, let's come back just one more time and let's ask the hard-hitting question because a good theologian and a good Bible reader, they're going to read the Bible, they're going to get to that conclusion. They will. But what about someone who's good at reading people? What about someone who's good at reading Christians? What about someone who's good at reading us here at Mercy Hill? Will they get to that same conclusion? Paul was willing to accept this reality for his life, but will we be willing to accept it for ours as well? At some point, it becomes simply not a question of methodology but of morality. And as we aim to walk in union with Christ, let us not ignore the call to pick up our crosses and follow him. As the author of Hebrews says, looking to Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God, considering him who endured from sinners such hostility from himself so that we may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your, your word, Lord. We thank you for the ways that you pierce us, Lord, the ways that you draw us to yourself, Lord. We, again, we, we, we come humbly confessing that we, we wander away, that we consistently fall back into life with the old man, that we forget who we are, and we live as if we belong to the kingdom of this world and not the kingdom of Jesus. We come back here week after week. We put ourselves in front of the word. We, we sing praises to you. We put ourselves around God's people so that we would be reminded of first who we are in you, Lord. That everything we need we possess in you. And to see who it is whose life we're living. That it's not just about a better, a better me but that our life is now inherently living the life of Christ in union with him, Lord. And we need, we need help seeing what that is. We need help doing it. And we ask that by the power of your word, with your spirit, that you would convince us of that and give us the boldness and courage to do it. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.